on the Jacob Beer Show today. I'm so happy to have Michelle Bachman on, who is a former congresswoman, former presidential candidate, and she's now the dean um, at Regent University at their School of Government. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Jacob. It's great to be on with you today. And before I get into questions, I just got to give a quick shout out to All Star Turf Management, who's sponsoring our show. Uh, it's springtime now, and summer's right around the corner, so make sure that you get your yards fertilized and go to Nathan Johnson for your uh, for your lawns. Um, so my first question really isn't a question, but um, how did you get involved in politics? And I guess um, what would you say? made you want to get involved in politics? Well, I wasn't overly political. I was a federal tax lawyer. I was a mom. I was a stay-at-home mom and at that time. And my husband and I were foster parents. We brought in 23 great foster kids over the years. And our biological children were being educated either through homeschool or through private Christian school. But the state of Minnesota, where we lived, only had one option for foster children, and that was public school. So I was shocked by the nonsense that I was seeing my foster daughters bring home in their backpacks. I'll give you an example. Our 11th grade foster daughter, her homework for algebra class was coloring posters. And I thought, I have never seen that. When I took algebra in eighth grade, we never colored posters. We had to learn to do algebra. Right. And I was disgusted by the absolutely sorry quality of education that I was seeing my foster daughters get. This was an affluent suburban school. And this was the kind of garbage they were bringing home. And so it really became what became a, a godly calling in my life. And I spent hours and hours researching what went wrong with America's educational system. This was back in the late 1990s. And it, it, the bottom line is that the federal government came into the local school classroom and the federal government took over the curriculum, the testing, they took over everything in the local school classroom. And their intention was to raise academic standards. They actually uh, tragically lowered academic standards. And so that's ultimately what got me involved in politics. I had other friends in my area who urged me to run for office as a result of the education. I was self-taught in what went wrong with America's education system. People wanted me to run for the Minnesota State Senate in our capital of St. Paul. So ultimately I did, I won. I served as Minnesota State Senator for six years. And uh, while I was there, we became the only state out of all 50 states that actually repealed the terrible federal standards that we had bought into in Minnesota. We're a very unlikely state to do something like that. And um, so I saw that actually you can defeat City Hall. And so then when wow. our local congressman decided to leave and run for the U.S. Senate, I was urged to run for his seat. I did, and then I ran for the U.S. House of Representatives. I won in 06, and I served for uh, eight years, and I left in January of 2015. And, of course, um, you, you did a lot of stuff while you were there in Congress. Um, you were a big part of the Tea Party movement, which uh, I remember in 09 when I was four and five. I remember mom going to Tea Party protest. Um of course, the movement is still very strong today, but in a different way. But there's the people are still there that we're fighting. Um, 
What was it like leading the Tea Party movement? Well, a little scary in a way. I mean, the thing is, I had strong convictions about what we needed to do because I had an insider's view. I was perched on the inside of the halls of Congress and I saw how things were going. And I was horrified when I saw what was called the TARP bailout. It was the bailout of the banks and the bailout of Wall Street. And we had the treasury secretary come and tell us one day that we need to give him a blank check for about, he thought, $800 billion. And I went to the microphone and I said, you wanna get, you, you're asking us to give you a blank check for $800 billion with no liability and you can do whatever you want with it. And he said, yeah, basically. And at that time, that was real money, $800 billion. Today under Joe Biden's America, they spend a trillion and a half dollars in the dead of night on a Friday night and nobody even blinks an eye. But this was, this was a lot of money and, um, and it was to bail out private industry. And I thought, you, you've gotta be kidding me when here we are a broke nation and you want us to spend this kind of money. So I pushed back, I challenged, and I uh, started the Tea Party Caucus as a result of the fact that I came from extremely modest circumstances myself financially, and I knew the value of a dollar. And so I knew that if we continue to spend like this, we're gonna see our economy crash and burn, kind of like what's happening now, because inflation is out of control for, for a big reason. And that reason is the fact that the United States government has printed money and spent it like monopoly money. And that isn't a cliche, that's a fact. And so when I came into Congress, goodness, I think maybe we were 9 trillion in debt, maybe something like that. I mean, think of that, that's an 06. Today we're 30 trillion, trillion. in debt. N numbers that no one's ever seen before. And, I, and Mitch Daniels, the governor of Indiana, former governor of Indiana, made an excellent statement, a great visual statement, when he said that America is spending money as though we are a car going 80 miles an hour straight into a brick wall. And that's exactly right, because you know, at the end of the day, even a third grader can figure out it's a math game. Math always wins. No matter if you're trying to have woke math or whatever you're trying to do, at the end of the day, two plus two really does equal four. four. And so when you have your checkbook and you run out of money and you keep spending money that you don't have, very bad things are going to happen. That's where America is at today. And so that's why I started the Tea Party Caucus because I saw the unreality of what these politicians were doing. This is back in like, 2009, 2010, I saw the unreal way that they were disrespecting the American people by forcing them into further servitude and debt and devaluating the value of the dollar. And I thought it was reprehensible. So that's why I decided to stand up and start the Tea Party Caucus. The other thing that really made me angry is the fact that President Obama put together this United States task force on um, automobiles. And in it, I saw something I'd never seen before. It was really a modern day fascism. His task force sent out pink slips all across America to about 3,500 automobile dealerships. And the pink slips went something like this. They said to the automobile dealer, a private business, 
you are going to lose your franchise. Let's say it's a GM fr franchise, Honda franchise, Buick franchise, whatever. You're going to lose your franchise within 30 days. So take your sign down and you are no longer going to be in business. Well, here you are, you're the local GM dealer in your town. You have cars sitting out on the, in, in, your, in your car lot and you have $300,000 worth of parts in your service department. And you're told by your government that didn't buy this business, didn't sweat for this business, that you have to close in 30 days. I was so angry. I went to the house floor and I gave a speech that I call gangster government. Because I said, that's exactly what the Obama administration is doing. This is gangster government. Because I had a car dealer from the town that I grew up on call me. And I, I was a nanny to their kids when I was 15 years old. And the wife called me crying. And she said, they got this pink slip. And I said, slow down, slow down. Tell me what's going on. She described to me, they got this pink slip. And again, just like I told you, they had to close their business in 30 days, take the sign down. They had all the parts in the shop. And the government was effectively taking their government, their business away from them. And she said, somebody's got to go to bat for me. And so I said, okay, great. Well, I was a Republican and I was in the House of Representatives. And this was a Democrat president, Barack Obama, who had done this through his automobile task force. And so Obama wasn't going to listen to me. I wasn't in his political party. And so I told, I, I cared more about my constituent than I did about the politics. So I told my constituent, why don't you contact uh, the Democrat US Senator from Minnesota and talk to them and tell them you need to get a hearing before this task force so that you don't lose it. The good news is that they didn't lose their franchise, but thousands did across America. And that's what made this gangster government. If you weren't connected to the Obama administration, you were out and you lost your lifetime savings. But if you could figure a way in, then maybe you could make it. This is as bad as it gets. That is an example of fascism, private ownership, but government control. If you want a shorthand version of what fascism is, that's it. Private ownership, but government control. And in this case, government was saying, we don't like you. A lot of, a lot of these car dealer owners were Republicans. And so they just decide we're going to put them out of business and let their friends go in and get new franchises from these car dealerships. That's called corruption. And that's what we saw. I saw I never saw corruption like I did under the Obama administration. I never saw corruption like that. And now we're seeing it once again under the Biden administration. That doesn't mean to say there isn't corruption under Republican administrations. I'm sure there is. But I will tell you, I never saw anything like this under Donald Trump, ever, ever saw anything like this. But now it's there in spades under the Biden administration. It's sick to see. That's why I started the Tea Party Caucus. Absolutely. And, and I agree with you because you just look at how things, you know, there's very few people nowadays on the hill on both sides. Um, you got people who you basically have a far left wing and then you got it feels like a lot of moderate republicans there who are not speaking up and saying anything like that leadership isn't speaking up and saying anything like that um but my next question is you ran for president in 2012 i just got to ask what was that experience like um of course uh, i know that the media is very unfriendly 
But that's true. If I could just follow on and what we were talking about before, people are very excited about this election coming up in November for obvious reasons. They want their lives back. They want to be able to work and actually hold on to their money instead of seeing inflation eat up everything that they have. And um, one thing I want to encourage people is that if Republicans gain the House and gain the Senate in the fall of 22, the big issue really is going to be who is the leadership going to be in the Senate? Who is the leadership going to be in the House? I can't tell you how crucial that is. Absolutely nothing is going to change if the same establishment cronies are Bingo. in charge. So we've got to wake up real quick and the voters, the people like George Bailey said, and it's a wonderful life, the people who do the living and working and dying in this town, the real people need to stand up and demand, we're not just going to go along with the current establishment leadership in the House or the Senate. We've no. got to have somebody who's actually going to go in and change things. The Democrats do. I mean, when they get in charge, they put people in who are actually going to do something and really change the system. Usually it ends up being for the worse, but we need to have people who are going to do something for good. And I would say in the House of Representatives, I would suggest Jim Jordan, who is my wonderful colleague from Ohio. He would make a fabulous speaker of the House. And I suggest that there are the, a draft Jim Jordan for speaker campaign would be a great thing to start. We need to get gutsy people, people are fighters, people who believe in the Constitution, people want to stop the out of control spending, get gas prices below $2 a gallon, which we can, we did it before under Donald Trump, and you do it by having American energy production, you can do it. But the US Senate has got to change. Bingo. And under Mitch McConnell's leadership, yes, he got a lot of judges through under Donald Trump, that was his job to do that, I thank him for that, but we need to have a new leader in the Senate. We need to have a gutsy leader in the Senate. There's some great people. Josh Hawley is great. Ted Cruz is great. We've got some really, truly wonderful people. We need somebody who's very strong, very gutsy in the Senate. And so we got to draft somebody on the Senate side who's going to be a great, a great um, president of the Senate. So you asked me about when I ran for president. The question is why? Why would anybody... <laughs> in their right mind, run for president of the United States. I certainly didn't, wasn't born with that ambition. I didn't grow up with that ambition. I didn't have that ambition when I was serving in the House of Representatives. I, I, I didn't have it at all. What happened is that once Obamacare came in, in 2009, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I knew that socialized medicine would be the last nail in the coffin of the United States because social medicine is where great Western countries go to die. It's so extraordinarily expensive. And plus, the United States of America has the finest healthcare system in the world, in the world. The patents that come out of the United States, the new drugs that come out of the United States, the medical device industry. Minnesota is a mecca for medical device industry. If you get rid, if you put socialized medicine into place, I mean, do you really want a bureaucracy deciding if you get a doctor appointment or when you get in, or if you get to have a medical device or a drug treatment or a surgery? They're the last people that you want to make decisions because it's truly life and death decisions about your health. And so I saw that we could lose the finest healthcare system in the world under Obamacare. And so I was urging a number of my colleagues to run for president. If nothing else, 
just to have the debate on the stage. And I went to different colleagues. I asked them to run. They said no. And I just couldn't get this sense off of my chest that we had to have a fighter run in 2012 so that we could progress that issue. We needed to debate it in front of the American people. Nobody knew what was in uh, Obamacare. Remember Nancy Pelosi famously said, we have to pass Obamacare to know what's in it. Nobody knew what it was, it was in it. It was thousands of pages long. No one read it before it got voted on. And here it was, this terrible bill. So I finally decided that maybe I should run. And so I, I really didn't want to do it, but my husband and I fasted. We prayed. We're, we're Christians. We fasted and prayed. And along about the afternoon of day two, both of us knew this was the right thing to do. I mean, imagine waking up in the morning, looking in the bathroom mirror and saying to yourself, I'm running for president of the United <laughs> States. You know, that's kind of a bizarre thing to do. So I did it, not thinking I was going to win, but thinking I wanted to see the debate. And so that was my signature issue. I was the first Republican woman ever to run for president of the United States. That hadn't happened before. I was on uh, television debates. I participated in 15 televised debates. I'm the late night shows. Thank you. And I'm the only woman who ever actually won a presidential contest. I won the Iowa straw poll. So the point of running was to put that issue and debate the issue of Obamacare because the seven men who were running in 12 for the presidency on the Republican nomination, um, none of them wanted to repeal Obamacare. They all wanted to tweak it a little bit, but they didn't want to repeal it. I was the only one that wanted to repeal it. So I made that my issue. I debated it every chance I could on the national media and every appearance that I had. And the good news is, is that the American people were persuaded to my position. Yes, we've got to repeal Obamacare. So by the time I left the race, I started losing uh, presidential primaries. So by the time I left the race, the men who remained all took my position, was which was repeal Obamacare, including our eventual nominee, Mitt Romney. And the Republican Party had to change their platform to read they were for the repeal of Obamacare. Here's the good news. Republicans went on to win in three different cycles. We, Romney didn't win the presidential re-election that year, but we went on to win um, House races, Senate races, governorships over the issue of repealing Obamacare. So when I left the race, I didn't shed a tear. I didn't cry. I knew that I had succeeded beyond my wildest imagination because our nominee took my position the Republican Party took my position in the platform, and that became the default position, which is the repeal of Obamacare. And when President Trump came in in 2016, he essentially went forward. Paul Ryan was zero help. Um, he, here he was, the Speaker of the House. He squandered that opportunity. He wouldn't advance the legislation on repealing Obamacare, which we could have gotten through if Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell would We had the House and the Senate. And we had the House and the Senate. That's what I mean. Leadership is everything. And so that's why they need, you know, that, that whole crowd needs to go. And, um, but what the brilliance of uh, Donald Trump is that he got rid of the individual mandate. What does that mean? That meant under Obamacare, you were forced to buy a product for the first time in history. Every American was forced to buy a product, healthcare policy, even if they didn't want it. 
So you're forced to buy an overpriced, bloated, underperforming product. And it was bankrupting families just to buy that lousy product. They couldn't even use it because their deductibles were like $13,000 before they ever even used health insurance. So it was a, it was a nasty mess. Donald Trump saved the day effectively. He did great things on healthcare. And I want to say he, you know, a lot of people maybe don't like his style. I will tell you, we should kiss the ground that for four years we had Donald Trump because during those four years, we had some of the best policy we've ever had. African-Americans' lives were never better than during the uh, Donald Trump policy years. Hispanic income grew, women's income grew, the job opportunities were plentiful, gas got down below $2 a gallon. I mean, we were just roaring and there was peace. We were ending wars. It was just a wonderful place. So I'm extremely grateful for what Donald Trump did during those years. And hopefully we will end this Biden nightmare and return to some sanity and safety in the next presidential cycle. Absolutely. And then just two other things I had was one was, um, what, what are your thoughts on how, because the thing is, like you just said, with leadership, it doesn't really matter if the Republicans win or not, if you don't have leadership, um, you got to have good leaders. Um, what, what do you think it's like to how you can be somebody who the party wants in leadership and get somebody else elected to that position in a leadership caucus or something like that? How, what advice would you have on how we could do that? How do you elect new leadership? I know you elect them, but like, you know, the establishment already has their person picked for who they want to lead this. They always have their like person that. They always have their person picked. This is the time when we got to take the gloves off and we can't be nice anymore. And I would say now during the election cycle, um, anybody can do this. Anybody can push the candidates that are running. You can push them to declare that they will not vote for Mitch McConnell for speaker and then find a consensus person. There's never a perfect person. If it's Ted Cruz, that's going to run the Senate. If it's Josh Hawley, that's going to run the Senate. You know, whoever it is that you think would be a good person, Tom Cotton, whoever you think it would be, um, find a consensus candidate and everybody has to get on board with that candidate and then advance that now during the election cycle. So that that is kind of a given so that when these candidates win, they have a mandate to go in and have truly conservative change agent leaders that come in. But it's the same is true in the House. We can't go with just establishment 9.0 because that's really where we're at. We need to have something completely different because it's the lobbyists, the people, the bag men, the people with the money, they're the ones who run Washington DC because they buy all these guys. So I get it. I get it that money is important and all the rest, but we got to realize what's happening right now. We are losing our country. We're losing it. And so if we want to get it back, we've got to do something very bold. And that is put in bold leaders who care about the people, not the lobbyists who just bought them off, whether it's Pfizer, whether it's Moderna, whether it is Boeing. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't mean to, to uh, name names and trash those organizations. Maybe they aren't the ones who are doing all the buying. But I know that there is a lot of buying and selling of politicians going on. And it's about time that we matter because let's face it, we are looking at our southern border. Last year, well over 2 million people illegally came into this country. 
and brought a lot of bad things into our country, a lot of crime into our country, a lot of poverty into our country. It has brought wages down for the American people. It's destroyed the benefit packages for the American people. We can't afford it when we're this broke. It costs us, oh, far, far in excess of 150 billion a year just for the new illegal aliens who come into our country. So this year will be well in excess of 2 million. Do you realize in over two, in just two years under Biden, we'll probably have 5 million illegal aliens coming into this country? That's more than major, that population is more than major metropolitan areas. They come in with absolutely nothing. And today in America, you can't find anybody to work. I mean, so there's a huge black market, there's huge crime, there's huge drugs. And then people like me, when I wanted to go to college or maybe get a little bit off from college, who are they going to help? They're not going to help the American citizen who's been working, who's been uh, for the past 13 years in public education, trying to get good grades so he can maybe earn a little bit off for college and things like that. They're going to help that person who just illegally jumped over the border. Well, they're, they're going to help the people who are going to vote for them. And they may think that you're not going to be the person who's going to vote for them. So if they can get more people dependent upon government services, then usually people vote for wherever their paycheck comes from. So if they work for a private employer, they tend to vote more for the party that's going to uh, help private employers. If you are dependent on government services, you tend to want to vote your paycheck. You want more government services. And so that's what the, that's what the Democrats are. They are the party of um, addicting people to government services. And that's why we're going broke. Absolutely. And one last question I have is, where do you see America headed? Um, of course, right now we got the conflict in Ukraine going on with Russia and everything like that, which uh, the more that's coming out of it, it doesn't look like it's going to be ending anytime soon, sadly. Where do you see us going foreign policy-wise like that right now? Well, you can get domestic policy wrong and you can turn it around pretty quick. We saw that both with Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. You can turn a, an economy and we roar back pretty quick. It's foreign policy where when, once you get it wrong, it's wrong in decades into the future. And we pay for it in brutal ways. Jimmy Carter, for instance, in 1979, sat on his hands when the Shah of Iran needed our help. And he paved the way for the Ayatollah to leave Paris and come to Tehran. And that was the rise of modern global terrorism. We've all paid a huge price for the ignorance and foolish actions of Jimmy Carter. Look at what Joe Biden did in Afghanistan last, last August. We have never seen a more humiliating, embarrassing defeat like we saw in August. Here we claim that we're the superpower on earth, military superpower, economic superpower, and we voluntarily in the United States went from being the strong horse among the nations to voluntarily rendering ourselves the weak horse among the nations, leaving $84 billion of the most expensive up-to-date weaponry on the battlefield. We spent over a trillion dollars in Afghanistan and we built China one of the finest air bases in the world, Bagram Air Base, in addition to other air bases. And now China has it. <laughs> they have it. So they are projecting force in Afghanistan to protect themselves. You can't believe Joe Biden would do something that stupid unless it was intentional. It had to be intentional. 
Absolutely. So I'm very concerned about the future. Now, here's good news with Ukraine. This morning, uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, announced that it looks like he is going to end this, uh, this war with Russia. It looks like uh, they're going to declare that Ukraine is a neutral country. They're going to announce that, yes, uh, Russia has dominance over Crimea, and they may have something on the eastern portion in Donbass and Donetsk to say that Russia has a presence on the Eastern section. I'll tell you what, if I was Zelensky, this would be my bottom line. Okay, you can have all that, Vladimir Putin, on one basis. You put rubles into the U Ukrainian bank account today. Once the check clears, then we'll declare this whole thing over. You get what you want. But I want all the rubles we need to rebuild all those buildings and to bring some, um, payback for the people who've lost their lives and who need to be put back together. There needs to be a big payment, hundreds of billions of dollars that come from Russia to rebuild Ukraine. That's not the United States fault. It's not our war. It's Russia's war. So between Russia and China, because you know that, that China was the silent partner in this mess, they need to send bags of money over to Ukraine and then they call it quits. Absolutely. And one last thing, of course, like you said, with the China uh, taking over the base and everything like that, that's only going to lead to potential invasion, which we could also see, sadly, uh, because we've seen Afghanistan, Ukraine now. What's next? Taiwan. They did a flyover a few months ago. All things like that of why we got to fix our policy now. Um, I, I enjoyed having you on the show today. Uh, for our listeners, though, you're the dean at Regent University. Where can they go to find more information on Regent? They can go to regent.edu. You see the name behind my back. So it's regent.edu. Tomorrow, we're having a fantastic conference that I want to invite everybody to be a part of. It is really about what's happening in the world today. Everywhere I go to speak all over the world, people say, what is happening? The world's falling apart. Yes, it is. And so we're going to do a five-hour deep dive from noon to five o'clock Eastern time. Just go to regent.edu forward slash globalism. It is free. It is live. We've got a live TV studio audience, but we're broadcasting globally. So join us at regent.edu forward slash globalism. We'll set the table geopolitically with the finest speakers that I could find on these topics for four hours. And then the last hour, we're going to take a look at what the Bible has to say about all, all this, these times that we live in. Unbelievably, the Bible has a lot to say about these times that we live in. So it's going to be a great, great conference. It's called Globalism Rising, because that's what we're seeing. Uh, global institutions are now running our lives rather than our nation. So join us, won't you? It is noon to five o'clock tomorrow, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, Tuesday, uh, March 29th, and join us at regent.edu forward slash globalism. For you in Indiana, it's that's the Midwest, so that would be 11 o'clock until 4 p.m. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.